Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Thanks, Miles. So, um, just by way of introduction, so I, um, I'm, I'm, I live now here in Kansas City, um, member at Midtown. Um, in a sort of previous life, I worked for off and on with immigrants and refugees for like close to 15 years um, in a small town in Illinois. So the, the sort of the context or the frame that I'll share with you is my experience working with immigrants and refugees in a rural community. But I think, as Miles pointed out, we want to. The focus today will be on the biblical principles that we could use to reach immigrants and refugees, really, no matter where you find yourself in the world. So let's pray, and then we will um, we'll we'll dive into the content. Father, thank you for this morning and for Mission Focus. Thank you for um, allowing us to set this uh, set aside this time so that we can um, hear your heart um, about the mission. God, I'm, I'm just really grateful that as the new year's approaching that we get to refocus our vision um, and around what, what you would have for us. And so I pray that you would do just that, that you would use your word to speak um, and that we would be edified and equipped and encouraged, convicted. Um, God, would your word do um, what it can do in our lives and just um, get us out of the way, Lord, so that you can speak um, to us in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's start. Um, so, you know, the, the focus of this breakout session for the last several years um, since I've known about it has really been on reaching international students. Um, and that's good. And there's ministries there and there's fruit there, you know, all over the world. And I think it's a great thing. Today, we're shifting a little bit to talk about a, a more like a different group of, of people, a different people group. We're going to talk about reaching immigrants and refugees. And there's a few reasons why we need to do that. Um, one, so Sometimes people assume that like, well, aren't all immigrants the same? Like, isn't reaching student, immigrant students the same as reaching just immigrants, the people that, you know, live in our neighborhoods? And I would, I would say that it, it's, there's a lot of similarities, but there's, there's several big differences. And just some generalities, right? So students who come to our cities and come to our campuses, they're typically young because they're students. Um, undergrad or even graduate students, you're, you're dealing with people under 30 years old for the most part. When you talk about immigrants, you talk about people who have moved to the United States. They weren't born here. They, they were born somewhere else and they moved to the U.S. You're talking about a wide age range, right? You're talking about people from all over the spectrum. Typically, students are here on student visas, which means they're here for three, four years and maybe gets extended. Maybe. When we're talking about immigrants, we're talking about people who have left their home to live here as long as they possibly can. In my experience, immigrants um, tend to be transient. By transient, I mean um, they don't put down roots as, as much as maybe Americans, um, but that, so they're moving around a bit. So it's a little bit temporary, but for the most part, it's less temporary than I would say than doing student ministry. The other thing I would say is um, typically immigrants, they're, in, they're, they're maybe older, they're also in different stage of life, right? Like a student comes here and a student is a student, maybe married, but probably not. 
maybe has kids, but probably not. Um, an immigrant or a refugee who moves to the U.S. might already have a family, might have come with a, a handful of kids, might come with um, a spouse, or um, you see this a lot in, with, with immigrants as well, uh, single people come to the U.S., leave a family behind. So I think it's important to think through these dynamics because we need to know who we're, who we're ministering to, and the, it affects the approach that we're going to take to that ministry. So reaching students is a little bit different. The other one major, another major difference that I would say is typically a university or a college that attracts international students, they're going to have a department on campus dedicated to international student life. Now, how well that department actually meets the student's needs is, is a matter of how well that campus is staffed and what they understand about, about international students, but typically there's support on campus. Um, for immigrants, for refugees, depending on where you're located, there might not be much like community support. And so the, you know, a lot of times you see students come and their needs are met, even their physical needs, their school needs are met at the university by the people there. Um, so they, maybe they don't have as many needs, but for, for immigrants and refugees, that support system often doesn't exist, depending, again, depending on where you are in the world, but that support system doesn't exist. Another thing, and, and the, again, these are big generalities. Another thing I've noticed about student ministry or about international students, typically they come from families that can pay for them to come to the U.S. and get an education because universities in the U.S. use international students as, um, I guess the best way to say it, they, they're kind of like cash cows. Typically international students pay tuition and pay full tuition and they're not getting federal financial aid. So it's good for a university to attract those people because they're making money off of them. Like that's kind of the behind the scenes, what happens at the university level. Um, so those typically those families, a lot of times are w pretty well to do or the students you're ministering to are going to a great amount of debt so that they can get an education in the US. When, you're, when we think about immigrants and refugees, we're usually looking at people that come to the United States, and again, a big generalization, they come to the US because they don't have any money. They don't have financial resources. They're coming here because they've heard of the American dream and they wanna partake in that. They wanna, they wanna become a part of that. And so you're, you're, even financially, you're looking at two, two very different um, age groups. So again, there's, there's a good amount of overlap, but the, I think the differences are there enough that it, it's worth our time to talk about specifically immigrant and refugee ministry. Um, also, we're a small group and I've got like over an hour to talk. You don't want to listen to me for an hour. So ask questions like it, it, we, this can be as interactive as you all want it to be. If we if there's a question and we go out to left field and chase rabbits, I'm cool with that. Like we don't get through the material, that's fine. So please, if, if as, as interactive as you want it to be, let's do that. Yeah, Miles. Yeah, I mean, so I think, I think you're, you're dealing, you're, you're still, you're still working with a group of people that is in a lot of ways very vulnerable in terms of um, they don't understand the language, they don't understand co the culture. Um, e and even though universities are maybe, maybe have these departments that are meeting students' needs, like I know we found out in KC, like there's still a great need for FOI, 
an FOI is wanted because it's meeting needs. And so I think that students and, and immigrants alike do have lots of needs to be met. Um, it's kind of finding the particular needs of the particular group that would be distinct. But the similarity, yeah, is that it's definitely like a, I would say a vulnerable group. And I don't know, how many people have ever traveled internationally? You've been out of the country. Okay, did you, ex would you say you experienced culture shock? Right, you're like, you get off the plane, like the first time I traveled internationally, I left the US, it was like December 30th. It was zero degrees at the airport. I landed in Cancun, Mexico. So we were on our way to Belize. It was 85 degrees. So in, in three hours, just that alone, you're like, whoa. And then the sights and the smells, the sounds, everything's different, right? And so you're, you've got this culture shock. And people experience that, whether they're students or whether they're immigrants, there's culture shock. The other thing that's similar is um, there's this idea of America. Right. When if you live somewhere else that you have this idea in your head of what America is, maybe that's influenced by, well, in the past was influenced by TV and movies, probably more influenced now by YouTube and TikTok and social media. But there's this image of what America is. And by and large, the people that I know who had some image of what America was and then they moved here, it's always very different. The reality of living here is always very different than what they thought it was going to be like. Um, sometimes better and in some some ways a lot worse i was actually just talking to a family last night um the hayden family they lived in zambia for seven years i was talking to one of their girls and she, they they just moved back and they're living in nebraska and she's like she's like we go to the store she's like there's so many options there's so much stuff she's like i lived in zambia she said we had three restaurants in our town and got we can throw a rock from here and hit three restaurants like it's, it's just so different. Right. And so you're still, you still have people that are, that are reeling. Like when people move here, it's a, it's a life-changing experience. Um, and so I think that's another one of the similarities. Any other questions about maybe the differences or similarities between students or anybody else have any other experience that you want to share say, yeah, I know this is, here's some similarities or differences. Okay. Let's, let's talk about some numbers. Remember, so I told Miles earlier that the clicker worked. It worked before we started. Yeah, I did. Thank you. All right, so let's talk numbers. Today in the US, there's something like 47 million people living here that weren't born here. So about 47 million people living in the US that weren't born here. Um, there's different subsections of that 47 million, about 23 million of them are naturalized citizens. That means they went through the process of becoming a citizen. They passed the test. They took the oath. They got their citizenship. They're not, they're now citizens. So that's about, about half. Um, also of that group, lawful permanent residents are about 11 million. Those are people that are typically that's, if you ever hear this, the term green card, Lawful permanent residents, they have a, what's called a green card. After five years of living in the U.S., they can apply to become a citizen. Unless, you're mar unless they're married to a U.S. citizen, in which case they can apply after three years. Um, but we don't need all those details. 
Another big subset of this group is unauthorized immigrants. Um, these are people that are living in the country without documentation. Um, the old way to talk about that group of people is to call them illegals. Um, I don't love that term. I don't think that any human should be labeled as illegal. Um, the more the more sensitive, the better term I think is unauthorized or undocumented. You hear the word undocumented a lot. And so there's about 11 million undocumented people living in the U.S. right now. That just means they're here. They don't have a green card. They don't have, technically, they don't have permission to live here based on current U.S. laws. And they're just living in the U.S. There's a decent chance that in your neighborhood, I don't know where everybody's from, but there's a decent chance that in your neighborhood, there's someone who is unauthorized by law to be here. It's a big group. This is crazy statistic to me. Just last year, so the year ended September 30th, at the southern border, border patrol agents encountered two and a half million people in one year's time. Those are the people that, that turned themselves in voluntarily or that, or that were apprehended by border patrol. That doesn't account for people that came across the southern U.S. border and, and didn't get caught or that didn't turn themselves in. Okay, so a two and a half million people in a year. Now, not all of those people are just crossing the border and then coming to the U.S., or then staying in the U.S. It, it's, super, it's a super complicated system, and it changes every time we have new administration. So under the Trump administration, there were mass deportations. Like they were just sending people. People would come across the border and turn themselves in and just get sent home. Or there's a, there was a thing called Title 42 where the people who were crossing illegally were, were told they had to go back to Mexico. They said, you have to go get status in Mexico before you can immigrate to the U.S. And so we, there was a little bit of a decrease. Since the Biden administration, though, this number has gone up. I just saw a headline yesterday that there's, right now, there's a caravan of people coming through Mexico, 8,000 people strong. Like that, that kind of thing is, so if you do the math, there's like thousands of people coming across the border every single day. Let's, um, on your paper, let's skip down to um miles could you go to like the fourth or fifth slide it's called god's heart for the stranger because we'll we'll just jump to it right now so um go to Le leviticus chapter 19 actually it's on your screen we'll just read it there so you see in the bible the tip usually the term used for immigrant is the word stranger okay so if if you're curious if you're more curious about like god's heart toward the stranger do a word study on that word. It'll, it'll open up the scripture for you. I've got two references here. The first is the first mention. So the first time you see the word stranger is Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. And this is God speaking. He says, he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. God's telling Abram, hey, the, this people group that's gonna come out of your line is, is going to be a group of immigrants. They're going to go to Egypt and they're going to be stuck there. They're going to be strangers in that land for 400 years. And then keep reading the Bible and it plays out. You see it happen. So God's people, they're, they're there. So God always has had a heart 
for the stranger because his people were strangers. Now, all through the Old Testament, anytime you see, uh, you, so you see God go through the law. Um, he's listed out in Exodus. There's verses in Leviticus, again in Numbers, again in Deuteronomy. God's putting out, he's, he's giving instructions to his people. And every time he does that, there's instructions about how to treat the stranger. So this is kind of the most comprehensive verse. And I think uh, Mike Renault quoted this verse yesterday, speaking about students. Leviticus 19, 33 says, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the commandment is to love them as one born among you. So if, you're, if you want to fill that in your blank, you can. The commandment, love them as one born among you. So when the Bible was written, there were people groups and there were lands and there was citizenship. Um, it's hard to take, so it's hard to compare maybe what God says and then try to, if we try to apply it to our exact situation, right? So we have, especially in the U.S., we're really strict on, we have borders and we have laws and you're a citizen. And if you live here and you're born here and we're going to protect that, right? We're like, we have this like national pride about this is who we are and this is what it means to be an American. And if, if not, we, we kind of make the process really hard for people in some ways to like become American. I think it was a little bit different in the Old Testament. It was borders weren't as closed or as difficult. So when God says, but the principle rep- applies, God says, love the stranger as one more born among you. Okay, so that's not a passive thing. That's not a, well, we'll just tolerate the stranger. That's an active, no, we need to love the stranger as if, as if he's our own kid, as if it's our own family, as if it's our relatives, right? So that's the first principle. The second thing I want to point out is that in the Bible, the stranger is usually grouped together with other like vulnerable people groups, including the poor and widows and the fatherless. So the way that we're to, to interact with and treat strangers is the same biblically as how, how God instructed his people to interact with the poor and widows and the fatherless. Um, the instructions to, to leave crops in the field or to not pick up the gleanings, to leave a corner of the field for the poor, you see the stranger grouped in with that group of people. So God's heart has always been, let's love this. You need to love the stranger. So the way I view the, the legal question, the, the undocumented question, is we're called to love people regardless of their immigration status. Like, to me, it's a non-issue initially. So we, we are to love people. We're to love the stranger as one born among us. That doesn't matter if they're here legally or illegally. Like, as Christians, as, as, as mission-minded Christians, right, we love people and reach them with the gospel regardless of their immigration status. Like that, to me, it's a non-issue. 
Um, here's what happened. Here's my experience. So we worked with a group of people like 15 years ago, and they were they were living in the U.S. illegally. They were immigrants. They had lived in Mexico City and in other areas and another part of Mexico. They moved to the U.S. and they were lost. Right? They were lost. They didn't know the Lord. Um, through some ministry at our church, um, we ended up ended up a few of them got saved. A woman a woman got baptized. They had like a Catholic background, so they were kind of religious, but like didn't really believe in salvation. So we were able to share the gospel with them. Start to so. They get saved. Um, there's a couple. There's a couple of families. They have kids, and and they're starting discipleship. And we're starting to teach them the word. So here's where it gets tricky because you get to the Bible, and there's it, the Bible is really clear, uh, like Romans chapter 13. I think it's First Corinthians 13 where it says, "Obey the laws." Of, it basically says, "Obey the laws of the land." Right? Like, if you have to be respectful of the laws of the country where you live. So. What happened with these friends that we had been discipling and that were growing in their faith, they, they had to reconcile their legal status with what the word of God was telling them. And it, it, it got, um, it was really heavy because they had established themselves. They had a life for themselves in the U.S. Their kids were being raised here and going to school here and learning English. And some of the younger ones were kind of forgetting Spanish and but like God dealt in their hearts and they said, for, for me to be right with the Lord, now that I'm a Christian, for me to be right with the Lord, I need to move back to Mexico so I'm not living here illegally. And that was something God did in their hearts. And it was, it was heartbreaking because we administered to these people. But it was also, it was like a step of growth for them because they were obeying God's word at another level. Um, it, and it, it was good, but it, again, it was really hard. I think, sometimes I think, okay, like I have two kids. If I was living in a country where I couldn't provide for my kids because of economics, because of drought, because of war, because of famine, whatever the reason, if I couldn't provide for them or, and or if I thought they were in danger, if the classic example, the drug cartel is like threatening to take my kids, like they're 11 and 12, they're about the age where you could be like, you're in the gang, right? If that started to happen and my only option was to illegally cross a border and live somewhere, I would do it. Even as a Christian, even knowing it's illegal, I would do it every day to protect my family. Like trust God that he's going to take care of us and all of that. But so I'm not necessarily advocating disobedience to God's word, but I think it's good to have that perspective when we think about why people maybe come to the U.S. And I think that's a good way to approach ministering to those people and with those people. Um, I think I think God cares more about their spiritual status than he does about their legal status. And that's where we should be concerned primarily first is with their spiritual status, whether or not they're God cares more whether or not they're a citizen of heaven than he does whether they're a citizen of a particular country. So does that help? Does that answer your question? It's, um, it's a tough issue. So the other thing to consider is that, so here's what a lot of people say. People say things like, why don't they just do it the right way? 
Like, why don't they just come to the U.S. the right way? For most people, there is no right way. It doesn't exist. There's no legal path for most people to get to the U.S. Um, another number we'll look at, I don't think. Yeah, if you could. If somebody could just click back um, a few slides. Like, I think it's slide. Yeah, right there. Thank you. So another thing to, to remember. So, okay, so we've got two, we've got different groups of people. So I'm sorry, we're going completely out of order, but it's all good. So we've got all of these people trying to get to the U.S. And refugees are a special kind of subgroup. So refugees are people that would be granted refugee status. So if for example, um, we had a lot of friends from Burma or Myanmar, and Burma is a country that's full of just persecution, and the the government will literally go into villages and burn down villages and um, to try to ethnically cleanse. So in, in Burma, you've got like different people groups. They're all Burmese, but different kind of subsets. And so the ethnically, they call themselves the ethnically pure Burmese, will go into villages that that aren't Burmese like from that background, they're like, they're, there's a subset called the Chin people. So the Burmese government will go in and burn down villages because the Chin people aren't ethnically the same as the Burmese people. So this group of people, this Chin people, they're by and large Christians. Um, if you ever get to read the story of Adoniram Judson, great missionary story, he, he brought the gospel to Burma. And I believe that Christians today in Burma are kind of spiritual descendants of him, but cool, great story. Like this guy lost wives and was in prison and gave his life for the Burmese people. So anyway, so the, so these people would leave their home because they're, they're being persecuted. So they would go to a place like Thailand and they would find a refugee camp and then they would apply for refugee status with the United Nations. So after World War II, we had you had in the world you had all of these displaced people that had been displaced by World War II, especially Jewish people, but lots of other people. And so the United Nations said we need to make a. It's called the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees. So they made this office that would just work with refugees and kind of manage refugees worldwide. Um, and so a persecuted person leaves Burma, goes to Thailand or Malaysia, or maybe makes it to India a safer country, and then goes to a refugee camp, applies for refugee status with the UN. And if that status is granted, that person can then move to the US. Or maybe they'll get located to Australia or New Zealand or England or someplace like that. But last year in the world, there's about 110 million people that had been forcibly displaced from their homes. Some of those people just have to leave, you know, if if there was a little uh, local conflict in Kansas City and all of the people who were of German descent, I'll say that because I'm of German descent, we were forced to leave because for some reason the government didn't like us, but we all moved out to Western Kansas. So we would be forcibly displaced, but we're within our own country still, so we haven't made it anywhere else. So some of those people, like 62 million people, were internally displaced. But a good number of people, 36 million people are refugees in the world today. 
which is a huge group of people. There's more displaced people in the world today than there has been at any other time in history. Okay, so of that big group of people, of the 36 million refugees in the world, the 110 million displaced people in the world, the U.S. last year resettled 29,000 people out of 110 million. Those people, so we started this talking about like, what's the right way? Like, so people, people want to say, why don't just immigrants come the right way to the U.S.? Why don't they just follow the path? Well, for this group of people out of the 110 million, there's a path for about 30,000 of them. So there's no way for them to get here. Like, do the math. That's a very small group of people. The, the U.S. government, the U.S. has resettled about 3 million refugees since 1975. The way it works is every year, the president sits down with Congress and says, how many refugees can we afford to let into the U.S. this year? And I think the max number they could go to is like 125,000. And so, but it depends. Biden recently made a pledge that he was gonna he's gonna try to double or triple this number. I don't remember exactly what they said, but for next year he wants more. During the Trump administration, and I, I'm not being political. This is just a fact. During the Trump administration, but we also saw COVID during that time. The number of refugees that were allowed into the U.S. went way down, like 20,000 a year. Where in the past it had been like in maybe 100,000 a year. But that number, it, it all depends on administration. So, so we're still kind of talking about the legal question, right? Or what, how do you minister to people who are here illegally? And what's the argument against like, well, why don't people just do it the right way? One reason people don't, quote unquote, do it the right way is because it's really, really nearly impossible to do it the right way. Immigrants, so the U.S. government will let in a certain number of immigrants each year. Um, but you typically those immigrants have to be highly skilled. So if, if someone's a doctor, um, if someone has a PhD, if someone can contribute financially to the, to the U.S. like in a big way or bring some skill set or some ideas, or there's preference for those people. And oftentimes those people have to have a job offer before they can even come. So they have to have a company that's going to sponsor them to get here. So that's one way, but most of the people that are coming to the U.S., the two and a half million that were apprehended at the border last year, they're typically like rural farm workers from Central America and Mexico. They don't have what the government would say is like the prerequisites to be here, to come here legally. Like there's literally no path for them. So most of us in this room are probably like I can trace my descendant, my, my ancestors back to Ellis Island, right? Can anybody else do that? Like you're, you're maybe European of European descent. I'm the only one. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Right. So <laughs> somebody, yeah. Like <laughs> she have like a binder with pictures and yeah. <laughs> the family tree. I love it. Um, so when Ellis Island was at its height, like the, the laws that we have today to keep immigrants out didn't exist then. So like boats, boatloads of people came over, especially from Europe, showed up at Ellis Island, 
like walked through a little process, proved that they didn't have tuberculosis. And then it was like, welcome to America. You're here. That was it. Like literally processing thousands of people today. Like I've been on Ellis Island. There's this huge hall. They would just line people up. And like, if, if somebody was like sick or had a cough, they'd take a piece of chalk and like write on their coat. But if I don't want to go to the doctor, I'm just brushing that off. Right. And I'm just getting in. Like people would come into America, like super fast. So when people say today, like, well, my ancestors did it the right way. Well, the right way back then was super easy. You literally had to just show up. Now, I'm not saying like getting a boat from Poland to America in 1905 was easy, but it was possible. It was legal. It was allowable. But the laws that exist today exist in such a way that they discriminate against, in my mind, they discriminate against certain people groups. And so there's no, there's no way for people to get here. So when people ask me about the legal question, I'm like, what do you want them to do? Like, I'll give you an example. If, and I don't, I don't know the exact number, so I don't want to exaggerate, but if like, if somebody, if somebody, um, somebody lives here with, with legal status and they have a sister who still lives in Mexico and that sister, there's a way for that sister to apply to come to the U.S. based on the person who lives here. So if I live here and I'm a citizen, I can apply to get my brother to come. The wait list for that, the processing time for that is in the like scores of years. It's like upwards of 20 years, depending on what country. Like if you're from India, if you're from Mexico, the Philippines, the wait list is ridiculously long. It's forever on a good day. And the U.S., the government service that, uh, that does all this is so far behind that like processing paperwork is crazy like it takes forever so um it's hard to quote unquote do it the right way any other thoughts on that or questions on yeah but um yeah mostly so so the town we lived in um was about ten thousand people and maybe a thousand of those people were immigrants um, so there was a meat, there's a meat packing plant in the town where I lived and most of the labor force, like 85% of the labor force were foreign born immigrants for a while. Um, during the eighties and nineties, they were mostly illegal immigrants, undocumented immigrants from Mexico. Um, and then in the two thousands, it started to change. So people from Burma, refugees from Burma started to come and then, um, legal permanent residents, so green card holders from mostly the Democratic Republic of the Congo and a few other like Western African nations, Togo. We had a few people from Togo and a few other, mostly, but mostly DRC. So they started to get visas and they started to come. Yeah, Puerto Ricans and then some Central Americans. Um, so it was a super diverse. So Monmouth was a like the school district or the, the town's 10,000 people. There's something like 20 languages spoken at the elementary school for a small town. Like, so you'd walk in and it was, it was wildly diverse. But you also had a section of town that was like old white farmer. Like just to say it, like that's who it was. And they were like, they weren't always super receptive to the new guy, to the, to the, foreign, to the stranger. Like 
they didn't have God's heart for that. So they were, there was a little bit of tension. It wasn't terrible, but there was like a little bit of tension there. And we got a lot of that. Well, the illegals are taking all the jobs. It's not true. And by and large, if you look at the statistics, illegal in, immigrants typically contribute to the to the economy more than they take from the economy, typically, by and large, especially after a few years and they get established. Like, and everybody says, well, they don't pay taxes. Well, they do. They just sometimes pay it under somebody else's name because they can't work under their own name because they're not here legally. So there's all these complexities. So that's another thing you have to consider if you want to if, if you're if you're doing ministry with people who are here illegally or people who are undocumented, one, it's super sensitive for them. They are they are walking on eggshells all the time. They're they live a constant life of fear. Like, what if I get caught? What if my brother gets caught? Like we had a student once who was riding in the back of a car that got pulled over and they checked his paperwork and he didn't have it. He was here illegally. He came with his parents when he was like eight, right? So he just comes. Well, we get a phone call one night from a federal prison. Hey, Rene Perez wants to talk to you. He's, we're holding him in Kentucky. We're like, we're the only people he knew that had a landline phone. So he, he had to call a landline. This kid's like 17, 18 at the time. They just took him to federal prison in Kentucky. And he was, he was driving in a car in Illinois, and they, just, they grabbed him, and they took him to federal prison in Kentucky. And like, he's just there for months. So like that kind of stuff, like people are living in fear of that all the time. So when you're, if you're ministering to people who might be undocumented, there's that. We, there's other things like there's a woman that we knew as Isabel, right? That's who she told us she was. And then later I found out her name's like Patricia because she was working as Isabel at the plant because she had somebody else's social security number because that was the only way she could work there. So like, that's wrong, but she has to provide for her family and like, she's got kids. So it's there, there's, there's that kind of stuff that happens too. So all that background to say there was nobody in Monmouth that was ministering to immigrants. Um, there were no churches reaching out. There were enough, there was, there was like nothing happening. And so God laid it on our hearts 18 years ago to start reaching immigrants like 2005 um, and actually used our pastor in Monmouth. So for the MBT people, you'll, you'll appreciate this. So our pastor reached out to a pastor in Costa Rica and Will Mata was at that church in Costa Rica. Will came to Monmouth to work as a missionary to reach the Hispanic people in Monmouth, Illinois. So we met him in 2005 and that's when the like ministry to immigrants started. So it started as let's do English class and let's try to reach immigrants. Like let's, let's, let's find a need and meet it. Years go by and as we're meeting that need for English, all of a sudden, if people know that you're willing to help, and I know the FOI people have experienced this, like you're willing to give an airport ride, well, you're also willing to give a ride to the doctor and to the dentist and to the grocery store. And you're probably also gonna get asked to also um, help them learn how to drive and name it and they'll, they'll want help with it. Right. So we were experienced that in Monmouth, like people, people needed help and we didn't know what to do. So we're like, well, we'll just learn. So I took like a crash course in immigration law, not so that I could give people legal advice, but so that I could help like point them to the right places to go. 
So like I just I did a crash course and we partnered with a with a group that was like a nonprofit immigration law office and we would just funnel people there. So we for 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 me, for us, it was always a matter of what needs can we meet and then what do we need how do we need to get equipped to meet those needs? And so we I started learning what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be a refugee, what is a green card, what is citizenship, all of that. Like we just we kind of figured it out as we went because we had to. Yeah, that's it's a good question. Um, I I think it a lot of it's situational. So we had, you know, maybe maybe three major kind of general people groups in Monmouth. We had the the Spanish speaking immigrants from kind of south of the border and below, and then we had the Burmese folks, and then there were African folks. Well, the Burmese people were by and large Christians, and they they created their own support groups and they did a great job of it. There was a, a town of 10,000 people. There was a, a Chin church or a Burmese kind of subgroup church. And there was 150 adults going to that church every Sunday. They were, and they were, their doctrine was a little bit off in my mind, but salvation was solid. Like they, they were um, like, we believe in the cessation of certain spiritual gifts they don't believe in that. So they would have revivals and there would be some speaking in tongues and some healing. But for the most part, like that people group was solid. So like that people group, we ministered to them in certain ways, like teaching them English, but we never felt like there's by and large, their spiritual needs didn't really need to be met by us because they had a really solid church. Um, so they were established. So I think it really depends on the group you're working with. So like certain immigrant groups or refugee groups are going to have that base of people that they just go to. And I know Mike, I think George both talked about this yesterday, like that group absorbs them and then it is kind of hard to pull them out. I would say if you can get to them before they get to that group, better. Like in terms of being able to impact them. So there's a stat and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know it exactly, but like when people go to college, like, and maybe this is true in your own life, the people that you met the first week of college are like your friends for all of college. You're like, oh yeah, like I've known you my, since I got here. Like that, that, that happens with immigrants too. Like the first people they meet. And I know that's why airport pickup's huge. Cause like, no, we get to meet them now, right? Like we're first. So if you can, I think, I think you got to pray that God puts, puts you in a strategic position to meet people at the beginning, like before they get absorbed into that group, because it gets tough once they're in that group. So if you can strategically get to that spot, um, then, then you're good. So I heard Andrew Ong speak at a discipleship conference like six years ago, and he said he was praying that FOI could become the first point of contact for people. And that happened. God did that through the airport pickups and some other things, right? So I'm like, that sounds like a good prayer. Like, let's try it. So we started praying that way. And a couple of years later, this family moves from Africa and we went to their house to welcome them. And I worked for the school at the same time. So I had some connections and I was also working for my church. So like we brought some gift bags over. We meet this family. They, they got off the plane like the night before. Husband, wife, four, five kids, straight from the Congo. They flew to the middle of nowhere, Illinois. 
and we're sitting and we're talking and we've got a translator there and the guy goes, his name was Pete Shu. He's like, oh, he's like, oh, you're Todd. He's like, I heard about you. He had heard about our ministry while he was still living in Africa. Like the family connections and the people connections went back that far. Somebody told him like, oh, when you get to the U.S., you're going to move to Monmouth and there's this group there that's going to help you. And like, he knew me by name. This guy lived across the world. So like, that's, that's just, that's just prayer. That's just like, God has to put you in that position. So God blessed us with like the, the, the person who worked in human resources in HR at the plant where all the immigrants worked, she went to our church. She got a position in HR. So she's seeing, she's meeting people as they're getting jobs, huge resource. The director of the English language program for the entire school district also went to our church. So every student that enrolled in school had to meet her. And then by extension, got to meet me and, and Anna and other people in our group. So like, I'm kind of going around your question because you asked like, how do you get people out of that? I would say pray that they never get into that and try to get strategically there so that you can minister to them from the beginning. And we, we never hid the fact that we were with the church. We held, we held English classes at the church. And every night when we taught English class, we either started or ended with a Bible verse. We would literally teach through Proverbs. Like tonight's, tonight the theme of English class is um, we're talking about how to spend, how to manage your money. So FOI in Vietnam is doing this with their English classes, right? You bring in a speaker, you bring in somebody who's going to talk about a topic that people need to hear about, and you're going to also give them the Bible at the same time. Like we, we did that forever. You know, we've done that for 10 years. And then we also did like the workshops, citizenship workshops right at the church. So people just knew right away that we were Christians and we would just literally a couple times a month at English class, like the gospel would be presented to a group. And then we're also building relationships and trying to do it on an individual level, of course. Yeah. So the, the, yeah, the school district was so overwhelmed trying to meet the needs of people that they said, put a Bible in the bag, invite them to your church. Like I sat with the superintendent of the school district and he's like, yeah, do whatever you got to do. And like, so, so we were able to make the, so people have this tendency to go with their own group of people, their own people group, right? Uh, Mike talked about that yesterday. But we were able to take, because they have things in common. So if I speak Spanish, I have these things in common with other Spanish speakers. Even if he's from Guatemala and I'm from Mexico and she's from Cuba, we at least have that language. Like we can, we can bond. So we were able to kind of make the common thing. The, the thing that people had in common was the fact that they weren't born in the U.S. 
So it didn't matter if they had been born in Burma or in DRC or in Cuba. The thing, the, the commonality became, well, we're all kind of different and outsiders. And then God was able to kind of leverage that to people made community within our little, within our little group, which was really, it was really sweet how God did that over the years of just building relationships. Um, there, the statistics show that they're actually primarily located in big cities, um, especially along the southern border from San Diego all the way across the southern border to El Paso, Texas, those places, Dallas, Fort Worth, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, you get up to Chicago, huge immigrant population in Chicago, New York City, huge immigrant population, some of whom are just being bused there against their will. but. Either way, there's the immigrants happening there. So the big, the big populations are in cities. Um, so if you're, if you're in a city, there's a good chance that you have immigrants and refugees in your city. Um, I will also say though, like we were back home at Christmas and we're in a small town of 3000 people where like some of Anna's family lives. There's two Mexican restaurants and the people who work there only speak Spanish. Like they immigrated from somewhere and started a restaurant in this small town. I don't know what you guys have in Laramie. There's much of an immigrant. And then kind of to your question too. Um, so one, strat one strategy I would say is pray to be what I would call on the front lines. Another thing I would pray about, if you're thinking about starting a ministry like this, is pray about a key person. Like, so there's going to be within the cultures, within the subgroups of people, there's going to be leaders. There's going to be influential people. There's going to be aunts and uncles and cousins and dads and grandpas who are working desperately to get their families to the same place. And so if you can get relationships with those key people, then they're going to influence all the people they know to, to come. And you're going to have favor with those people. Like God's going to put you in a position of favor because you ministered to aunt Susie and she loves you. And she's going to recommend you to all of her friends and all of her neighbors and all of her cousins and all everybody. And all of a sudden it's going to, it's going to blossom and it's going to grow. Especially I think in, I think Hispanic culture tends to be real family oriented. And so I think especially in that culture, and that's what we saw was like a, a domino effect. Like God would use us and maybe we'd reach a mom and dad. And then all of a sudden their cousins and their uncles and like they're inviting their friend, like they want to share what God's done in their life and they've got a close family group. And so it like there's this web of people gets created. So be in a, like, pray for that strategic position, but also pray for that person. You know, that person that would be kind of your into the community that would help draw people out, you know, so that you could have gospel conversations so you can minister to them. So I would say both of those are kind of good strategies. Um, Um, as far as what the immigrant population is, um, I don't. 
Um, so, can you go to the slide that distinguishes between immigrants and refugees? It's, yeah, it's the definitions. It's right to the fourth slide. Here, okay, nope, next one. Okay, so just by way of definition, I think this will help answer that question a little bit. An immigrant is someone who now lives in the U.S. but was not a U.S. citizen at birth. That's the broad definition of what an immigrant is. Okay. And George, I know you're a lawyer, so if you're like, man, he's way off, just correct me. Okay. Oh, okay. So I'm free to be I'm I'm free to be as wrong as I can be. Like it's all good. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, so those are immigrants. Refugees are I we talked about this before. My example of the family that came from Burma. Uh, or the people that came from Burma, a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. Okay, so that's a refugee. And that was that number I showed you that like 29, the U.S. resettled 29,000 immigrants, or sorry, refugees last year. Another group is called uh, an asylee or an asylum seeker. These are someone who has fled their own country to seek sanctuary in another country. Here's the difference. A refugee gains refugee status outside of the U.S. or or in another place, and then goes some and then is sent somewhere as a refugee. An asylee is the person who comes across the border and says, "My life's in danger. I need to be safe here in America. I'm seeking asylum. Please keep me safe." Which is, of the 2.5 million people that crossed the border last year, a lot of people are coming across now as asylum seekers. So what you saw in the past was you saw a lot of people come across trying not to get caught. Like, we just want to get in the U.S. and we're going to lay low and we're going to hide. The trend lately has been for people, they actually want to get apprehended at the border. And they, they say, look, the cartel was trying to get my family or I don't have any money. You see a lot of people coming from Venezuela now. If you're watching what's happening in Venezuela, the economy is crashed. Like, they're going full on communism. It's a bad deal. Like 200,000 people left Venezuela last year to come to the U.S. It's huge numbers of people. They're coming and they're saying, I'm, I'm in danger. Give me asylum. So what typically what happens is those people are given a court date. They say, okay, um, we've got 30 million applicants for asylum and you're at the bottom of the pile. So go live in the U.S. with your cousin and we'll get back to you. Well, Sometimes they get back to them, and sometimes those asylum seekers never go to their appointments, and they just live in the U.S. Like that—that that that's pretty common. So, um, why did we start down this rabbit trail? What was your question? I've like already. Yeah. Okay. So, because refugees are processed through the UN, the United Nations Council of Refugees. So there's this big structure, right? It's UN at the, at the international level. And then at the U.S. level, the U.S. has like a department dedicated to the resettling of refugees. But the government doesn't actually handle it. They sublet that out to groups like Catholic Charities, Jewish Vocational Services. And they say, locally, these groups are in charge of resettling refugees. We're gonna, the government said, we're going to delegate that authority out to these groups. And so if, like last, in the last couple of years, a couple hundred Ukrainian families 
have moved to Kansas City. And not as many, but some um, Afghani families. After the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, the government said, we ne- we've messed up these people's lives. They're in danger. We're going to move them to the U.S. And they, they say, well, you're going to Kansas City. And, um, well, Catholic Charities works there, so they'll help you. So for this people group, there's, there's established organizations that are already working with them. I would say, so there's different opinions on this. I, I think it could be valuable if you're like, where are refugees? I want to minister to them, but I don't know how. Get on Catholic Charities, get on Jewish Vocational Services website, sign up to be a volunteer, and you'll get to work with a family. After your background check passes, they'll literally, they do things like furnish people's homes who are just moving here. They do things like teach language. They do things like teach citizenship classes. They do all of that work and you would have an immediate in to be with people. Now you're working through a non-church organization. So I know Mike talked a little bit yesterday about really like parachurch organizations. This isn't even, it's like Jewish vocational services and Catholic charities, for example. They're like, in my mind, doing things that the church should be doing. But I don't know that I'd fight against them. I would probably part if if I was going to start this in in KC and I wanted to reach refugees, I'd probably start out by being a volunteer at one of those organizations. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say two other thoughts about refugees in particular. Typically a refugee has been through some sort of trauma. So they were forced to leave their home in order to survive. Maybe there was war, maybe they didn't have enough food, whatever the reason. So if you're thinking, if you're praying through like ministering to refugees or asylum seekers, they, they are here because life at home forced them to be here. So they've gone through something probably awful. Like there's people who have seen their family members killed in front of them. Like kids who have said, yeah, they shot my dad because he believed this. And we ran into the jungle and hid for three days before we could come to safety. Like little kids that have dealt with that. The other thing refugees have gone through in a lot of cases is they've spent a good number of year time, months, maybe years in a refugee camp. So literally like their life just went to a, came to a halt and they lived in a tent with thousands, next to thousands of other refugees for maybe years at a time. So like thinking through how to minister to people who've experienced that kind of trauma like there's lots of opportunities there, but that that's what they're coming with. The other thing I would say that, so we talked about what are the similarities and differences between student ministry, uh, international student ministry and refugee and immigrant ministry is that, man, like it, as soon as you, it's this, this will, this will happen. You'll, your heart will be knit together with someone. Um, you'll be loving on someone. You'll have built a relationship with that person. That person maybe has come to Christ and maybe got baptized and is plugging into your church. And then they'll get a, a friend who lives in Minneapolis and they're leaving. Like, and you minister to international students and they get a degree and they get a job offer somewhere or they get to go to Boston to get their PhD. They're leaving. Like, it's this hard thing of you have to take it personally in the sense of investing in them personally. But then like, not take it personally when they leave 
because another opportunity came up. So like, I think signing up for immigrant and refugee ministry is, I think any ministry is this way. It's like signing up to get your heart broken a little bit. But student ministry is that way. Adult, every ministry is that way. Like this one might be, the people group is maybe a bit more transient just by nature. And so it might, there might be a little bit more of that, but that's not a reason not to do it. Like, I don't want to say don't start or don't reach out to immigrants and refugees, but just know that that's what you're signing up for. And it's not personal. It's not like they don't like you. It's just Uncle Joe got a job in Indiana and he can get me a job there and it pays better than what I'm doing here. And he's my uncle, so I get to live with him. You know, like it's practical. It's very, so anybody ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Okay, so he has this theory that like, I think it's true that people's basic needs need to be met first. Even their physical needs need to be met before even their spiritual needs, right? And so like Class A Spana here at our church deals with this a little bit. Like, why don't they come to services or why aren't they here more? Why, why aren't the Hispanic people coming to mission focus? Well, because they have jobs, they don't get paid time off. They get paid by the hour and they have to feed their family. And they're sending 20% of their paycheck back home to, to pay for their mom and dad to eat dinner tonight. So yeah, they're not here because they're working. It's very, especially when times are hard, people become very pragmatic, very practical, very survivalist. And we have to love them through it. It's okay, Miles. Yeah, sure. So I've, um, I'll, I may repeat some stuff because we were kind of all over the place. And thank you for all the questions. Could you go back one slide? So God gave me this passage out of Deuteronomy um, a few years ago. Um, I, it's probably been more like seven or eight years. Like as I get older, time becomes fuzzier. <laughs> um, but God gave me this passage, and this was what we were able to use as a framework for international for for immigrant and refugee ministry where we live so I'll, I'll propose this as a general framework um with also some very practical steps that you could take to say yeah i want to start this at my church or these are this is how i want to get this going so deuteronomy chapter 31 deuteronomy is the second giving of the law so the israelites have already been given the law but they also already squandered their chance to get into the promised land on time. They wander for 40 years. Right before Moses dies, God's like, give it to him again. Tell them the law. They need to hear it so they can get into the promised land. And you got to pass this thing off to Joshua. So this is what God tells Moses in Deuteronomy 31. He says, gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law, and that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land whither you go over Jordan to possess it. So let's talk through practically these steps in what God tells the Israelites to do. So I'm, I'm taking this concept. God tells Moses, gather everybody together, all your people and the stranger, and this is what you should do with them. So the first what I would say is maybe the first step is to gather. So when I think of gather, this is, this is outreach. This is what I would say is outreach. This is, this is building relationships. Okay, outreach, build, um, 
you want to use the biblical kind of analogy of plowing the ground. You're just plowing the ground. And it might take years. We lived in Monmouth for 17 years, worked with immigrants most of that time. It took 14, 15 years before we really felt like we were in a position of, of influence. Now, that's a small town, and like we were the only ones doing it. I think it, if you had a subgroup of people, it could go a little bit quicker, maybe. But gather is outreach. So what, is, what does outreach look like? Um, I would say any success that we had in sort of like events and like getting people to come, if we would go around town and post flyers, hey, English class at the church next week, we put flyers everywhere. No one came. But as soon as we started being able to get into people's homes and build relationships with people, the doors were, the floodgates were open. So gathering is all about outreach. It's all about building relationships. And obviously it starts with prayer. Like I told you strategically, we were able to have, this is the woman here who worked um, at the HR, at HR in the, at the plant. So during English class, this woman didn't yet have a job. So they're applying for a job together. Like the HR person is helping her apply for a job and he's the translator. Like he's the guy that's been in the country five years and speaks French and English both really well. And she doesn't yet. So they're working together to get her a job. Very practical. This was in, this was in like the office at our church. They literally came to our church and did this because we had the people. Like God gave us those people. So that's a big thing we did. We did the English class. Here's Anna teaching English class. And we just keep it practical and simple. Um, another thing we did was a lot of help with housing. This is a family that moved from DRC um, in December. So they get off the plane and it's freezing cold and they didn't have a place to live. But the week before they moved, our church rented them an apartment and furnished the whole thing. We had 20 people show up on a Sunday afternoon. We filled their house with beds and couches and tea, like filled their apartment. And when they got to the States, they got to move into that apartment. We didn't know them before they moved to the States, but he did. And he connected us. And that family came to our church and their daughter got baptized at our church because we had this key guy who had connections and we had this key woman who had connections at the plant, like strategic. So as you're gathering people, you're praying for relationships. Um, you're praying for the right people. You're praying for the right positions. I would also say, man, so God gave me this vision for, uh, from this passage in Deuteronomy. And I was given the liberty to just present it to the whole church. And then there are people in your church who have a heart for this family, but they don't even know that they have a heart for that family because they don't know who that family is. There's people in your church that have a heart for immigrants. But they might not even know it because they've never been around it. They don't know who those people are. But once, once, they, once they have a vision for what it looks like, once they have God's heart that says, don't vex the stranger, don't oppress the stranger, love the stranger, Make a way for the stranger. Treat them like you do the poor and the fatherless and the widow. Once people hear that and they recognize that that people group is there 
in their town, in their city or the city next door, then people are going to gravitate to that. So as you're gathering and doing outreach, I would say use a team approach. So get as many people involved as, as want to participate or as can participate. And I would also say, use what you have. You know, when, when Moses is standing before God and Moses is like, God's telling him, hey, I, I am, I am. Like, go get my people out of Egypt. And Moses doesn't want to do it. So like, how could I do this, Lord? Remember the question that God asked Moses? He says, what's in your hand? Oh, let's use that. You got somebody that can teach English? Do an English program. You got somebody that works at the plant? Do that. You got somebody that can do rides to the airport? Do that. You got a business guy who can hire five refugees when they move to town? Talk to that guy. Get him involved. So Anna's a teacher. She was a Spanish and ESL teacher at a high school. So she's teaching. You know who else taught in her English class? A carpenter and a farmer, a nurse. Like we just used people, like anybody that had a heart, we just used them because, and it worked. They weren't polished. It wasn't a college class, but they loved people. So get, find the people that love immigrants, pray for them, cast the vision and people. I I'm a firm believer that if you, if you cast a big vision, that people will gravitate to that and their hearts will be knit toward that. Anyone in my experience, anyone that's ever worked with us in, in this ministry has said, that's like the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Like it's super rewarding. So, okay. So we got to gather people. I think I'm almost out of time. The next thing we do. So the next thing um, God says in that passage to Moses says, gather the people that they may hear. So you gather people and build relationships. When I think of this step, I think of evangelism. This is sharing the gospel. So you've gathered people, you've done your outreach, you've plowed the ground, and then you're, you're evangelizing, you're sharing the gospel. I also will say there's like five steps to this process, but it's not a process. It's not sequential. As you're gathering people, you're evangelizing. As you're evangelizing, you're gathering. Like it, it all works together, but these are the different aspects. Like the different kind of focus areas. So you're, that people can hear, right? So we shared the gospel at English class. We did special events. This is a Christmas party. We had a couple of small group Bible studies in our church. And we just said, hey, could, could you guys cook dinner for like 50 people? Christmas dinner, like turkey and ham and all the American stuff. And they showed up and did that. One of our pastors presented the gospel that night, talked about the true meaning of Christmas. Gospel is just out there. We had gathered the people. We shared with them what what they really needed in their life, which was the gospel. The next step, so he says that they may hear and that they might learn. So I would call this discipleship. So learn is discipleship, right? So it's just the sequence, right? It's we build relationships. We, we, we present the gospel through prayer. People get saved. People's hearts are moved. Then we start discipling them. Now, if you're just quickly, if you're discipling people whose first language isn't English, expect it to take longer. And it's okay. Part of the process might be them learning English. Another part of the process might be you need to track down the discipleship materials in their language. Easy for Spanish. We've got it. There's some French. I've seen some French lessons that were produced through, through the Living Faith Fellowship. I think they're out there. Um, 
Our church now has this 18 lessons in Arabic. So the resources are happening. Um, Swahili's happening because of Kenya. The Saigon team's working on it. Yeah. Yep. The resources are out there. So there, I've also heard people say like, why don't they just read the King James and do the 18 lessons? Anybody here speak a language besides English? And you try to read and write and think at a high level in another language. Super hard. Like it takes years of study. And if you're working with immigrants and refugees, depending on where they're from, maybe they never went to school like ever in their life. Life. Maybe they can't read in their native language. And we're like, read the King James. I struggle with the King James. Like I have a college education and sometimes I'm like, it's tough. So just be sensitive to that too. So discipleship comes next. And then um, and then we teach people to worship, right? To fear the Lord is to worship. We did a big international Sunday at church and we let the Africans lead worship that day and they sang and they wore their clothes and they brought fish and grubs. Like we were eating insects. I'm pretty sure they were still alive like squishy, weird in your mouth, but you're like, you do it, you know, like it's okay. Um, and that's, that's part of it. You worship. The next thing would be obedience, which I would say, God says, teach them to observe, to do all the words of this law, right? So after, as we're getting, people are getting discipled, here's the, the young lady who got baptized. She said, I need to follow the Lord in obedience based on what I'm hearing. She gets baptized. Um, lots of good stories about that group, but we don't have time for it. And then the, the, the final step is, is God says, and that their children may do all of these things as well. So that's what I would say, the next generation. So we're always looking. So as Anna said earlier, we all, here's our two boys. It's like five years ago. They were just part of the ministry with us. They just break down a lot of doors. If people have kids and you bring your kids, you're in. And they can connect in ways that adults kind of struggle to connect. Um, so, um, so their children. So, um, we're out of time. I I'll just end by saying that I mean we kind of already talked about this, but this ministry, like every ministry, is messy. It's complicated. It's difficult. It can be super frustrating and taxing. Um, you'll start meeting needs and just get asked to do more and more and more and more and more, but it's, it's worth it. When we're ministering to immigrants and refugees, we're ministering to a group of people that is really special in God's eyes. And as we minister to widows, to the fatherless, to the poor, we're doing the same. Um, God has a special place in his heart for this group of people. And I think as churches, we, we should have that heart as well. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.